Hello and welcome to the ARC Podcast. I'm Adam. On today's episode, Joy and I talk with author Tracy Groot. Tracy is the author of many Tyndale books, including Flame of Resistance, The Sentinels of Andersonville, and her latest book, which is The Maggie Bright. If you're familiar with the new Christopher Nolan film Dunkirk and are familiar with World War II history, um, this book takes place during the Battle of Dunkirk, and it is an excellent read. Tracy's upcoming book is titled Madman, and we talk a little bit about that in the episode as well. If you want to learn more about Tracy, you can visit her website, tracygroot.com, or find her on Facebook, and you can find all of her books at tyndale.com or anywhere books are sold. Tracy, we are so happy to have you on the show today. Thanks for taking time to be with us. You bet. So Tracy, if you could share a little bit with us about how you became a writer and how your background led you there. Sure. Well, I've wanted to be a writer since I was about eight years old. Um, But a a very interesting thing happened. I, um, somewhere between eight and 16, when, you know, in in your late teens or or in your teens, you're starting to get an idea of what you want to do. Well, I wanted to write, but um, I became a Christian. And so the odd thing was that I had this idea that I had to swap God for Mm. my new life. And so what I needed to do was give him what mattered most to me. And that was writing. Mm. So at that point, I just totally ditched any idea of going to college. I had this idea that Jesus was going to come back any day. So why bother? (laughs) So (laughs) <laughs> and uh, as a result, my grades began to plummet. I was like a straight A student. So I become a Christian and my, my grades plummet. So I was just like, you know, I was just happy and let's blow bubbles and kind of thing. And, and then, you know, when Jesus didn't immediately come back, you know, then I realized, okay, um, I need to be in this for the long haul. So it was kind of in my mid my mid twenties that I thought, you know, I love to write. And I have found that usually what you love to do is where the Lord is leading you because God is good. So I, um, at that point I had kids, you know, I had, um, one, one or two kids and they're really, it really wasn't a great time to go to college. So I fell back on as far as teaching myself the craft, as far as, you know, know, what skills do I need to bring to this? So I, uh, I fell back on, um, on just reading, um, because I, the one thing that never changed from the time that I was eight years old, I was a voracious reader. And I think that more than anything put into and really trained me to write because I didn't just read you know, the, uh, the popular fiction, I was deep into classics and deep into, um, these incredible authors who taught me to write simply by reading, you know, I'd get hooked on Charles Dickens and I'd read everything that Charles Dickens had or Steinbeck and then read everything of Steinbeck. So, uh, it was reading that taught me to write. So that's how I became a writer. Mm. What um, what led you to become published? Well, 
I think love of reading again, because um, love of reading gave me a feel for story. And so I would, I would read some books and go, I can do this. I can do this. I, and as time went on, I knew I wanted to do this. I wanted to write stories. And then stories began to present themselves. So then um, I just began to write. And then I thought, okay, I want books. I, and I didn't want to start out writing magazine articles. And that's usually the typical advice that a seasoned writer will give you. Um, okay, if you, if you want to, well, especially way back then, you know, you know, now they might say something different. But, you know, 25, 30 years ago, it was, okay, if you want to write, you got to pay your dues and you have to write magazine articles. And so I did due diligence. I, I thought, okay, you know, I want to do this right. So I, I started writing magazine articles, and thankfully, none of them got published. Might <laughs> <laughs> have put me on a different tra trajectory. I don't know. So, um, so after my first rejection, I thought, great. I now have, um, you know, I can mark it off my list, say that didn't work, and now I get to do what I want to do, which is write books. So. Um, so I happily left off magazine writing and, you know, to become a book writer. Hmm. I love that, Tracy. I really think that the principle so often shared, like if you want to get so-and-so a job or this type of degree, you have to, you know, work your way up from the bottom, which I think there's a lot of wisdom to it. Yeah. But also if your passion is there, just go big at the beginning and just see what the Lord does. Just do what you want to do, yeah. you know, and I was so grateful that I didn't have to waste time anymore not doing what I wanted to do. So <laughs> exactly. um, one of the things that helped me, you know, I, I am a big advocate of learning the trade. And so uh, what I what I began to do is I began to look for ways to to write. And I actually got a job as a copywriter for a radio station and that was great because it taught me how to write 30 to 60 second spots out of a huge ton of material. So it taught me brevity. It taught me um, how to combine different thoughts and, and make the, make one sentence very potent. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, kind of an on, on the job training that played into writing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Tracy, how did you settle on, fiction and particularly books that center on world war ii well i'm kind of all over the board with with uh the type of story that i tell and i, I think i kind of figured out that my mo is that i find an event that interests me um and and i know that there there must be something far more to the story than than what i'm hearing mm -hmm. And, and that's what gets me interested. It's not necessarily World War II. It's not necessarily biblical uh, fiction, um, particularly, well, right now I'm writing a book about Jonah. And it's not Jonah that interested me. It, it was the sailors that he sailed with. Because here are these guys, all their lives, they've known the sea to behave a particular way. And then along comes this guy who, you know, he's just, you know, a passenger like anybody else. So they think, 
until this incredible storm comes up, which that storm was not even supposed to be there at that time of year. So these sailors already know there's something really wild going on. And then they cast lots, find out it's it's this guy um, who says, yeah, it's, it's on account of me that you are about to die. So it's up to you to throw me in the sea and then and then um, and then you'll live. And the research has been absolutely um, amazing because I've I've gotten into the psyche of a sailor. I've gotten into the psyche of um, well, kind of the ship and the sea and to understand how it behaves. And then that very moment where Jonah is thrown into the sea, suddenly there's a calm. And so my my thought is. What happened to these sailors? You know, Jonah goes off to Nineveh, but what about these guys he left behind? You know, how were their lives utterly changed by this incredible thing that happened? So, so I tend to write based on event, not necessarily time period. Right. That's that's a, a perfect segue to my next question, which Maggie Bright is kind of around the Dunkirk. Uh, during World War II, and you've done Sentinels of Andersonville, which is around the Andersonville prison and Civil War, yes, and yes. Flame of Resistance, which is uh, French resistance during World War II. How do you, yeah. uh, in writing historical fiction, how do you find, um, how do you get your characters into those events? What are you thinking about? Because um, you're writing the fiction side of this historical event, how do you get your fictional characters into those mm-hmm. those real life events? Mm-hmm. That that's a great question. I think that is exactly the fun for me um, to find out how do I tell this story, and so telling the story almost always involves peripheral characters. Uh, because I, I like to tell one event from many different points of view, and that way you have a solid story. You have a story that is uh, represented represented from, for example, in Maggie Bright, I have, um, I, I kind of tell it from three points of view. I, I tell it from the point of view of an American. Because my agent told me a long time ago that readers tend to be xenophobic. And so they usually, American readers, so they usually like to have, um, readers usually like to have an American, uh, American readers, with one foot in the culture that they know so that they can juxtapose that knowledge against whatever they're learning, you know, so that they sort of have something to fall back on. They have their context of, this is familiar to me. So what I did is I needed to have an American in my story. So I created an American. And actually what's really fun, I learned that there were a few Americans who were involved in the Dunkirk rescue. They sailed just as my character did from the rendezvous of the Thames, you know, from you know, the Thames is, is the river that, that goes through London and then out to Sheerness, which is on the uh, east of England. And then from there, they launched the rescue. So there were a couple of Americans that were there. And so that was really fun to discover that. 
And then, uh, so I, so that was my, my American perspective. And then I needed an English perspective, not from the, the French side, you know, where not from, um, uh, logistically the France side, because of course you have the English perspective of the, the British soldiers who are about ready to die. And then you have the English perspective on the other side of the channel of people just like you and I, who are civilians and they get an unprecedented chance to go to the rescue of the military. When historically, that's the other way around. The, the military rescues the civilians. But um, they called Dunkirk the greatest rescue in military history. And it was done by civilians, primarily. It was also done, of course, by the British Navy. But if the civilians had not helped ferry the men from the shore to the battleships, which, which were standing out about a mile, because of the the, pro, the whole problem was that it was way too narrow, or uh, I'm sorry, too um, too shallow for the British uh, battleships to go in and collect their guys and go home. So the role that these civilians played was they would jump on a you know 25 foot yacht, cross the English Channel, which was being uh, mined, bombed, and shelled from the shore. I mean, it was absolutely horrific, you know, the the hellish war that was going on at the time. So, so then when they get to shore, they have to deal with loading guys, as many guys as they can, into their boats, and then navigating um, waters that are filled with, you know, I hate to be so graphic, but dead bodies, um, lots of oil, lots of wreckage from ships that are being blown up. So these guys have got to navigate through all of that one mile to get out to a British destroyer, load the guys up on there, and then go back and do it all over again. So so I had I needed to have three perspectives, and I felt like that would tell the story the whole way that I wanted it told. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, um, I had never heard of Dunkirk until learning about your book and also the upcoming Christopher Nolan movie. How did you learn about it and what what makes you decide you want to spend this much time writing a book uh, about <laughs> an event in history? As you've said, you, lo- you like events. What makes yeah. you decide to choose that event and then spend that much time with it? Yes. I, I think when you get snared with a passion to tell a story, it's like you are, you're all feet in and you don't care how much time it takes. And you don't care sometimes how much money it takes. And you don't care, you know, you don't even care if you think that there's going to be a publisher to publish the story at the end of it. You know, you just need to tell the story and you kind of feel like you're appointed to tell a story. You know, you just got to do what you got to do. So, how I found out about the story was I was, it was actually in research for Flame of Resistance. And I was reading um, about, you know, you know, because I was, I was um, focusing on the French resistance at that time, but I was also focusing on a period in history that was just before D-Day. And so 
my research took me to just before D-Day. And then I kept reading about Dunkirk, which was just before D-Day. And well, it was about a year before D-Day. No, I'm sorry. It was five years before. But I needed to focus, you know, what I do is when I tell a historical event, I back way up in history so that I can have a good context going into that time and understand culture, understand mindset. So I was reading a few um, history books and Dunkirk kept coming up. And then I was kind of amazed to find that Churchill, his finest speech was made about Dunkirk, you know, uh, and people remember snippets of his incredible speech. You know, we will fight them on the, on the beach. We will fight them. And they don't realize that that came from Dunkirk. Um, I think a, a lot of people have an idea that that was just some rousing, especially Americans, have an idea that that was just some rousing wartime speech. But no, that came on the heels of the greatest military evacuation in history. And one of my favorite stats about Dunkirk is that at the beginning, Churchill and the Admiralty, you know, at the beginning when they realized that um, over a quarter of a million men were cut off and surrounded and they were literally sitting ducks. When, when the Admiralty and Churchill realized that, and by the time that they were able to mobilize um, as many ships as they could to get there as fast as they could before Hitler came down on them, they hoped at best to save 35 to 40,000 men. That was, that was what they hoped at best because that was all they could imagine. But when the um, Churchill even called it the miracle of Dunkirk, and he was not even a particularly religious man, but he said it was a miracle that we pulled off 360,000 men instead of 30 to 45,000. It was a miracle. So, you know, you drop stats like that in history books, and that just got my attention. I thought, mm -hmm. what is it about this Dunkirk? So that's how I heard about it was just through, through research, and I had to find out about it. Mm -hmm. Tracy, what's your research process like? I love to research. I find, though, that it's an exhaustive process, or an inexhaustive, either one, where you could just keep going. Oh, and there's, you know, a never ending to the facts and, you know, the little trails that will take you. So do you do it through books, via Internet, via databases? Do you go to these places? What's your process? Well, I have learned that you need to have some sort of a reasonable ending for the research. Yeah. Because as, as a, a, a professor, I once heard uh, he said this. Research is endlessly seductive, and I have found that to be true because I, you, you try to find out as much as you can about a particular subject or as much as you can about the withdrawal of the British Army. You know, you, but there are 50 books out there, and so what I try to do, you know, I mean, just on the withdrawal alone, yeah. So what I what I do is I as I pick I, I examine you know at the beginning of a project I examine all the places of research that I need to um, to know. For example, what was wartime England like in 1940? 
Um, what was, uh, where were the Brits um, stationed in France? What was the parameter of, of their, uh, you know, I, I had to know where they were stationed. What was it like where they were? Uh, were they well received? You know, did the French receive them well? Did they look upon them as liberators or did they look upon them as intruders? You know, I had to learn all of that. So with each particular topic, I try to pick four or five history books that will give me the facts. But then I try to also find, um, I don't know how to word it, sort of the, the cultural feel of the time, you know, it's like, don't just give me the facts, but give me what it felt like to be there. Mm -hmm. So what I'll try to do is I'll try to find books that are written, uh, historical fiction books that are written at the time. For example, um, I'm thinking of The Sentinels of Andersonville. When I wrote that book, I got a hold of a fantastic fictional book written at the time. Mm -hmm. And and that gave incredible insight into the culture of the time that I would not have picked up by history books. Yeah. So I, I pay attention to um, historical literature, um, history books. And then if I'm able to watch any sort of film about an event, um, whether it's a movie, like, uh, for example, Mrs. Miniver was a film, uh, a rare Dunkirk film. Um, and it, it, it had, um, you know, British stars in it. And I'm able to pick up things. I'll, I will, my husband can't stand watching movies with me when I'm on research mode. Yeah. <laughs> Always hitting pause in order to write something down, something that I observe in the screen. For example, Claire in the Maggie Bright, she has to get on and off a bus in order to get from where she is to um, a policeman's precinct. Well, I happen to be reading or I happen to be watching the Mrs. Miniver film, and all of a sudden I realized that there were there were buses, and and on the side of the bus they had um, they had the little oh. Um, stops listed which they don't have that nowadays if you're in london they don't have that listed on the side of the bus but they did back in 1940 so i was able to incorporate that little thing that i saw in the mrs miniver film with uh with just a tiny little detail with the maggie bright so so that's a you know that's an, a third aspect of of um research and then i have two other ones uh, one is uh, site research. I love to go to, to original places where the event happened, if it's possible, because you will pick up, um, you'll pick up topography, you'll pick up a feeling of space, which really adds to the writing. And then you'll also pick up, I know this sounds weird, but you'll pick up a feeling of the place. So um, I've, I've been to Dunkirk and I've been to the English Channel and I've been to Dover, and I've been to London. I visited all those places, and I've also been to the place where um, where my book opens up on the Thames, um, Teddington Locks, mm -hmm. which was featured in Mrs. Miniver, and it was featured, you know, in a lot of the books on Dunkirk as the rendezvous spot for a lot of these little craft. Mm 
So site research is really important to go to get a feel. And then lastly, um, interviews. Um, I, I was fortunately able to interview a couple of people who, um, although they were not there at the time, because these, actually these, um, the Dunkirk heroes are a little bit older than World War II veterans today. So, um, you know, at the time that I was researching Dunkirk, so few people were left to actually talk to. Um, I did interview a few English folk who their parents were there at the time. And they were, they were children at the time. And so they were able to tell me, you know, that they were able to tell me things like, we didn't know what was going on, but we, know, we knew that um, something dire was going on. And, and so all these little things. Um, that and things like um yeah we had our victory garden planted I'm like victory garden what's a victory garden well everybody had a victory garden planted because um, food was so scarce in England at the time that you became a gardener whether you wanted to or not you found a plot of land somewhere in the village and that little plot became yours and you would plant your victory garden. I didn't know this stuff, but they, they would tell us, you know, they'd tell me all about the victory garden. So um, site research will also yield the unexpected. Whenever I, whenever I go someplace, I find things that I never dreamed would come my way. Um, stuff that you would never pick up from a book. For example, it just so happened that when my friend and I went to England to, to do research, that it happened to be, and I, I, I'm not making this up. I mean, you, you, can't, you can't believe this. It happened to be the celebration of the Dunkirk rescue. So in London, all of these original little ships that had actually gone over were there at St. Catherine's Dock. And so... Being the, the cheeky American that I am, I, I went up and I started asking questions. I found out you don't do that, but it, it served me well. So I, I went up and I started asking questions, you know, so did these boats actually go over, blah, blah, blah. Well, it, it was really cool because, see, they were having this big soiree at the time. I didn't know that. So I'm, you know, walking around interviewing people. But, like, Princess Di's aunt is there, right? I mean, this is like a black tie affair. And, you know, they're, they're like drinking champagne and stuff like that, toasting, you know, the Dunkirk thing. And here I am walking around asking questions. But it turned out great because they were so gracious and they were so accommodating. And one of them ended up saying, well, did you know that this MTB-102, you know, a, a motorized torpedo boat, did you know that this was the boat that kept, carried Captain William Tennant off? Um, he was the last one to leave Dunkirk. And in Christopher Nolan's film, I believe that it's uh, Kenneth Branagh that plays him. So I got to tour this boat. They invited me aboard. I toured the boat. I took pictures. So I'm on the actual boat that Churchill was on. Eisenhower was on, King, oh, not King, uh, Prince Charles was on this boat. Okay, so. <laughs> that is unbelievable. It was just like, you know, it reminds me of um, Tom, Tom Brokaw has this incredible quote. He says, it's always a mistake not to go. And so I've sort of incorporated that as what I do as a writer, that 
you know, if, if I need to get a story, it's a mistake if I don't go to site research mm-hmm. or it's a mistake if I don't try for an interview mm-hmm. or something like that. So mm-hmm. anyway, research always yields the unexpected. Mm-hmm. And out of that unexpected comes the shaping of your story. Mm-hmm. That's so neat. It really is incredible to see how all of those things lead to discovery. And it sounds like you go into each of those with questions and when you ask questions, you get answers. It might not be the answer you were expecting, but like you said, sometimes they're even more grand than you thought they'd be. That's that's exactly right. And you know, it's it's a good parallel to what you mentioned at the beginning of the interview where you had the job at the radio station because I can imagine you're getting paragraphs, if you will, of research. And then it's your job as a skilled writer to pull out those poignant sentences and say, this is what my story is. And all of this is, you know, crafted the characters, but obviously you can't include all of it. Exactly. That's exactly right. You have to decide what is relevant. Mm-hmm. And, 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 as a matter of fact, as I'm, as I'm writing, I try to imagine what the reader is reading and what the reader's not reading. Mm-hmm. And I try to leave out what the reader's not reading. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sam? <laughs> yeah, that's really well said. I like that. Um, your next book with Tyndale is Madman. Yes. comes out in October, which is sounds a little bit different than your other Tyndale books. Can you talk a little bit about that book and where the idea came from? Yes, and it couldn't possibly be more different. <laughs> and it was a super juicy book to write um, because it really had to do deal with um, a biblical event that, well, let me back up a little bit. What captured my attention with this particular story was when I would read the story in the Bible about the the Gerizim demoniac who would frequently cut himself and he would frequently break his chains and terrorize this, this, um, this region. And my question was who put the chains on him? Who, who dared? I mean, the guy was full of demons who dared to go shackle him. And so I kind of came to my own personal conclusion that it had to be family. Mm -hmm. And so I wondered, you know, what was it like for a a family to have a brother, a son Mm -hmm. who was full of demons Mm -hmm. and, and what, you know, obviously I think those shackles meant that they were holding out hope that someday there was going to be an answer for him. Um, Otherwise what I learned is that, um, local villagers wanted to take him out. You know, they just they just wanted to put him down. And somebody said, "No, he's worth saving, and I'm going to shackle him until he uh, until hope comes, until something happens that this man that we love can be set free." And so somebody saw in him something worth loving. So, so my question, that was the story to me. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, uh, of all the books that I've, that I've written, uh, I've, I've written and published eight so far. That was the one where research was not typical because it, it had to do with demonic possession. And so I was really careful. I, I, you know, I tend to do a lot of, um, research on the web. I did no research on the web for that because I didn't want, I didn't want to go to freaky sites. And then mm. how could I trust those sites? You know, so I ended up talking with a lot of local pastors 
And I ended up reading um, good, solid biblical books about possession. Mm-hmm. And actually, I found the most incredible book, uh, which is a, this thin little book by Cortenboom mm-hmm. called Defeated Enemies. And I ended up getting more information out of that little book than so much of the other, you know, uh, history or not, not history books, but um, subject books that, that I, I read. So, but also that was, um, that was a very interesting book or a very interesting book to research. And I have to say, I think that that one probably has my heart and soul. Um, you know, and you're not supposed to say that about any of your books, <laughs> but that really has got it for me. <laughs> That's incredible. I, what I love about this one, it makes it unique that it's a spiritual journey probably for this man and for the family member that you speak of. And, um, you can't, but help go on your own spiritual journey when you're writing these books. That's, Mm -hmm. that's exactly right. And, um, there, there are really cool things that happen with every book that you write. That one was special. That one was different. And I think it was because it was so deeply spiritual. Mm-hmm. And the fun thing is that, you know, some, some of these other historical fiction books, you can't get away with a lot of spiritual stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and with Madman, it, it's pretty much all spiritual. And so I kind of had, that's why I said it was just juicy. You know, I, I just had a, a field day. I could say the things that I wanted to say. And yes, it's kind of freaky. And um, it, I used to... Uh, recommend it all the time to everybody. I was like, you know, you got to read this book if, you know, if blah, 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 blah. Well, I learned that not everybody can read books like that. Mm-hmm. So I've learned to stop shoving it down <laughs> the nearest throat, you know, <laughs> as, you know, as something that I'm passionate about. And here I want you involved in this, right. blah, blah, blah. So, um, so I've learned to be careful, you know, kind of, mm-hmm. and just let people make your own decisions. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that's great, Tracy. Awesome. Well, we're kind of at the end of our time here. Okay. Um, but if people want to learn more about you or connect with you online, what's the pay- where's the best place to go? You can go to Facebook. I have an um, uh, author Facebook page. Um, it's just Tracy Groot. And then, and it's, by the way, it's either Groot or Groot, although it's, you know, with Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> I love saying I am Groot. <laughs> So, or you can go to my website, uh, tracygroat.com. Okay. Awesome. That sounds great. And for everyone who's listening, you can check out Tracy's books on tyndall.com as well. You'll see that Madman is coming out and that the Maggie Bright is available now. Absolutely. Yeah. With a really cool book trailer that yes. Tyndale so. <laughs> yes, we love it. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thanks right. for everything. I thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. All right, see you later.